on Mother's Day 2019. Today we celebrate. We celebrate motherhood, the moments we forever cherish. We were brought up by our mothers, fed at her breast, washed by her side, loved when we sobbed through the night. Our moms are the ones who held us in their bodies and gave their lives to help us live. For some, this day brings pain, the pain of neglect, of barrenness, of abuse. Rejoicing in the blessing of motherhood can be hard on this day. And while this pain exists and courses through our veins, today we choose to celebrate. The fact that in our humanity we are taught about the eternal. We learn what it means to be born, to be helpless, to be brought up through another's life. And yet, we are blind to it as it occurs, only knowing our dependence on our mothers. It is only as we grow older, becoming mothers, befriending mothers, and seeing mothers, that we understand the collective blessing we have been given. We all have a mother, and one way or another, she gave herself to carry us into life. We forget that motherhood is a part of the divine, that God is maternal. He is the perfect mother. It is, in, it is the loving arms of God we are carried in, the breast of God we rest upon, the nurturer, the healer, the lover of our childlike faith. Being image bearers of God, mothers of this world participate in the life-giving grace of God. This mystery is to be cherished and wondered at, just as we wonder at other sacred mysteries of our faith. Today, we celebrate the life our mothers have given us and the life the greatest mother constantly gives us. What's up, fam? Uh, today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 32. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. All right, let us pray. Uh, Jesus, um, thank you for your family here. Thank you for all the children you've gathered here, Lord. Uh, Just be with us, Lord. Uh, just fill our hearts with a desire for you, 
um, just fill our hearts with a sense of your love um, and fill our hearts with the freedom and ability to say, I love you back uh, in your precious name. Amen. So before we continue, well, David kind of topped whatever I'm going to say, but (laughs) happy Mother's Day, moms. Um, The Christian family really, really needs you. but, uh, but really, the Christian family really needs each other. Like, we need each other in each and every season of life. And today is Mother's Day, um, but just because it is Mother's Day doesn't mean that we don't need the rest of you. Um, but so I can see how Mother's Day, or any day that emphasizes one or the other category over the other, uh, can feel a little bit hurtful if you're not included. And some of you are never going to get a day, um, and that's okay. It's going to be okay. Um, but whoever you are, and wherever you are, the family of God needs your voice. Um, but today, America honors moms. So thank you, mothers. Thank you for your love. Uh, we need your love. Um, so today is the fourth Sunday of Easter Tide. Easter Tide being a church season a time up from Easter Sunday all the way up into Pentecost Sunday. And with Easter comes spring, and our spring has been a little confused, right? Like, some days, like three seasons in a day, like winter in the morning, spring at noon, summer by 3, 3 p.m., and like back to winter in the evening. Uh, and it's been on the colder side, which is cool. I can't help but think of like all those like those poor little plants coming out of hibernation and all those first blooms and them all the forest to sit in like snow flurries and freezing rain. Um, but that's but that's life, right? Uh, being being Easter people means that total darkness in the soul is gone forever. Total darkness is over. Uh, you have been healed and rescued in Christ. Um, and you are on a trajectory of more healing and more rescue by Christ. But what it does not mean is that you no longer experience darkness, really inward or outward. Maybe total darkness is over, but there are plenty, plenty of shadows. And it does not mean, it does not even mean that you will no longer experience death. Death of the soul is gone forever, but death of the body death of the body will come to us, and sickness will come to us. So the basic message of being an Easter people, I've broken down to three things. Um, First, there is an announcement, uh, then there is a life-giving spirit, and then there is a promise. So being an Easter people means the announcement that we carry with us all day, every day, is that the cross was indeed a victory for us. Christ pulled into himself all of the destruction so that he could be the resurrection of all things. In him is completeness of being for all of creation, completeness of being for all of our salvation, completeness of being for the new heavens and the new earth. So Easter is a time of rejoicing, rejoicing in the finished work and life of Christ, Christ the Savior, both God for us and man for us. The book of Hebrews teaches um, that for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In a single offering, completeness for all time. And our first reception of Christ's completeness is through his spirit. His so is from his open wounds that Christ's spirit comes to us. So 
being an Easter people means a life-giving spirit, if, and the spirit of Christ is within us. So if you think back to that, that verse from Hebrews, for by a single offering he's perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. If we have perfected for all time over here as the completeness of Christ for us, we have the life-giving spirit makes the connection at for those who are being sanctified. So those meaning all who are united to Christ through faith, through the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit. So we are, whatever the season, Easter people, all day and every day, because our spiritual life of faith is resurrection power within us. And resurrection power from the God-man that unites us to the God-man, Jesus Christ. And finally, being an Easter people means being a people of promise. Death comes again, and our bodies fail. But the resurrection of Christ was God's first display and his guarantee of promise to clothe our souls again with the body and blood of Christ. It is a new humanity in Christ, a new eternal humanity in Christ, really true human flesh and blood. We, like, we, don't, we totally forget that. We don't think that it's there in the scriptures, but it's totally there. And the promise is that each and every one of you will be able to look at your own hands and your own feet and call it the body and blood of Christ. It is not just mystical and spiritual. We have a spiritual sense that we can say that now, but really we will one day take on a participation of an eternal physical flesh that is the flesh of Christ. So, we are at the beginning of a new sermon series titled The Art of Receiving, in which we will begin to focus on the healing that is Christ, the healing Christ does for us, and how Christ heals us, and how Christians Christians can just begin to participate in that healing. One of my favorite verses on healing Um, comes from the Old Testament in Malachi. Uh, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So union with Christ, relationship with Christ, sort at this moment, not yet physical, but transports us now into the spiritual, mystical realm. It is a realm that has room for all of us and every single bit of us it is for the dead parts of us, the half-dead parts of us, the all of us. And this realm is Christ for you and with you. It is eternal and timeless, but also temporal and time-filled. This realm is vast fields of grace. And this realm, each of us stand in our own two feet in a like purifying and healing landscape. So this sermon series is asking the questions like, so where would you like to go? (laughs) I am here where I am because that is where I am. So how do I grow? How do I change? What is getting more of Jesus? Well, as a reminder, um, as we talk about the sacraments and spiritual disciplines, it is important to remember that some of what we are talking about is simply already and always happening. And what is being asked of you is to stop ignoring what is happening or stop fighting what is happening and stop running from what is happening and just participate in the divine life that is inside you. Like worship, faith, repentance, prayer. 
And then some of what we're talking about is intrinsically purifying and offered to us freely, like baptism, the confession, Lord's Supper. And then some of what we're talking about is just tools, like tools to learn dependence on Christ, like solitude, study, fasting. Um, For anyone who has been around, uh, I'm sure... Well, maybe, maybe I'm not sure. I'm sure some of you have noticed a pretty significant shift in the way your pastors are talking about the grace of Christ. But it is certainly not the case that we like take back <laughs> what has been said of the grace of Christ, but our understandings of grace are growing and taking on new dimensions. Grace, grace is an abstract that we often fill with our own meaning, But our understanding of grace must always keep surrendering itself to the person of grace. And the person of grace, Jesus Christ, who goes where he pleases and does what he wants. Um, So one of the main areas in which we have matured in knowing, um, in growing in knowledge of grace, is that grace forms the soul. And grace gives direction if each of us indeed are standing on our own two feet in a purifying, healing, mystical landscape, then what what am I supposed to do? Our conceptions of grace often excluded direction from having a role in our freedom. But what we have experienced both pastorally and, and even organizationally is that no direction can be just as burdensome as too much direction. Uh, so this whole series that explores the sacraments and the spiritual disciplines are all attempts at finding that balance um, in our hearts and our minds regarding the directions available for the spiritual life and directions available for the spiritual community. So uh, some of this gets pretty complicated here because <laughs> I see in myself that like if I start saying new thoughts for the first time, they get like really, really dense, and it takes me like a couple sermons down the road to like unpack them, and then like <laughs> so bear with me. Um, I think I can safely say that for most of our most of us as evangelical Protestants, um, much of our spiritual discipline has simply been the self-discipline of faith. Uh, that is where we live and breathe. That is like the water around us. We can't even see it. Um, and the reason for this, uh, this Protestant emphasis, is that there's like this deep inner self-sufficiency in our faith. Now, you may have never heard of it that way, like a deep inner self-sufficiency, but it colors really every all of our assumptions as Protestants and evangelicals. Um, 1 John 5, uh, it reads, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And a few verses down, whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. So yeah, there, there actually is a deep inner self-sufficiency in faith, because it is Christ indwelling. But if you stop here at this self-sufficiency of faith, you can really start to peer into the divide um, that exists in Christianity. Uh, Before the Protestant Reformation, the primary conversation of Christian faith was the interaction of faith and the sacraments. Um, So like all this talk that we're doing about presence and healing um, 
was for them the, the only conversation was the engagement of faith and the sacraments. It was the conversation. How to experience Christ and how to love Christ more was a conversation of faith and sacraments. The presence of God was defined and understood. The grace of God was defined and understood. So that is kind of a conversation that's way too big for today. Uh, but I do want to make some quick comments on the experiential implications of um, that way of thinking. So me, on, me and my, my salty days, might say to my Catholic friends, Catholic mean like Catholic and Orthodox, that they hold their faith in deprivation, not in Christ indwelling. And if you look in the early arguments of like Luther and Calvin, you're like, yeah, like totally. I see that. I agree with that. Um, of course, of course, my Catholic friends would protest, um, but you could easily get a sense of like looking at their construct of faith. It is always looking for supplements um, instead of learning contentment with Christ in the present moment. But at the same time, the abundance of faith that is within us, the presence of faith that is within us, was never meant to be alone from the structure and clarity of the sacraments. So when faith thinks itself as alone, the self-discipline of faith can easily become all of your experience. It is all your experience in sanctification. It makes your sanctification, all of it rides on private devotion. Experience becomes the measure of God's gifts for you. Your thoughts become the measure of God's truth for you. Your feelings become the measure of God's love for you. All of worship is up to you. So... So you can say, sure, I have this deep inner self-sufficiency of faith because it is Christ indwelling, but it can end up feeling like just presence up to you. And you cannot do this alone. And alone is really not even an option. <laughs> but So you really are never doing this alone, but it can feel that way. And so at the Painted Door, like many in the Too Cool for School evangelical church in the last decade or so, uh, we, have, we have found much much comfort in the instruction of the ancient forms. And when I say ancient forms, I mean like the church calendar or liturgy or tradition in general or the regular practice of the sacraments. Many of us have experienced a grounding, a calming in our Christian walk. Um, the ancient forms have offered connection to Christ and connection to each other without all the emphasis just resting on our individual will to just do faith. Um, so, if you all remember, healing in this life means conformity to Christ. And our healing is not self-defined. Healing comes through presence, or presence for healing. And faith itself is born from God's presence given to us. He is presence for our healing. And so from faith, we begin, we begin to experience what I call, hold on, let me back up. All right, I'm going to start trying to explain the sacraments, something I've never done before yet, so <laughs> bear with me. Uh, so from faith, so from this inner self-sufficiency of faith, we begin to experience a presence for presence. And so what do I mean by presence for presence? First, well, we have presence within us, God's presence within our own person. And then second, we have God's presence within each other. 
The presence within you is not up to you, and the presence in me is not up to me. And this doesn't sound crazy yet to our evangelical Protestant ears. Even if we're not well acquainted with what, how I just said it, um, the engagement of presence at that level, one Christian to another, is not foreign at all to our imaginations. But what is very foreign to our imaginations is a presence for presence in the interaction of faith and the sacraments. So, <laughs> how do we place sacraments in our imagination? And I guess the main question is, is there a third manifestation of God's presence? It's easy for us to accept presence of God within us, and it's easy to accept presence of God within each other. What is not easy is God's presence within the sacraments. And so specifically today, we'll be talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, so let's first turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want to be, for you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Um, so in the Reformed tradition, um, which I guess I subscribe, subscribe to, and our church generally vibes with that, um, they have always taught a sacramental continuation. Um, and so this is really what we see right here in 1 Corinthians 10 um, that sort of gives a narrative and a, under a framework for the sacraments coming to God's people. Um, the sacraments belong to like this shared family energy and presence that just unites all believers, both Old Testament and New Testament. And I have to say, like, <laughs> something about that just warms my little heart with thinking, like, like God's family has just always been met here, like in food, in water, <laughs> in drink. Because um, it's not just believers now, but all believers on both sides of the cross, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, with the cross was healing for all time, and at the cross, God's gifts of salvation go both ways, in like the past, the present, and the future. So that is how he can look to Moses and say they drank from the same spiritual rock. They, the rock was Christ. So continually flowing from the cross into each and every community of faith is this gift of the sacraments. And so, yeah, and you can see in these verses, both a precursor to both the baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, um, and today we'll just talk about the Lord's Supper. So, on to our scripture for today. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I want to say that I do not feel in any way that I have the Lord's Supper figured out or that the painter even really wants to figure it out or wants to figure it out for you. Um, like all things Christ, it seems the more you learn, the more you learn that there's more to learn. Um, so the mystery, the mystery is very great. 
um, especially in this interaction of presence and energy. Um, there's presence here, there's presence there, there's God, and there's energy um, shared between us um, that it doesn't seem it doesn't seem very wise to get too convinced about how all that happens. <laughs> um, but to just go with the flow joyfully. <laughs> uh, but I will say of the Lord's Supper that I do believe um, that it is bursting with presence and energy for our healing. Um, and I think I might be convinced uh, that it's, it really is perhaps the primary means of our sanctification in this life, which is a huge jump from our evangelical Protestant assumptions. I mean, as a Protestant, you're like, reading my Bible, I listen to sermons online, sanctify me. <laughs> uh, so... Um, <laughs> I say, uh, so is there this third presence? And I, I say yes. I say yes, there is. Um, and what has brought me to that possibility and being open to that possibility is the words of Christ in Matthew 18, verse 20. It says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Which brought me to pondering this idea of presence for presence. So not just presence in me, and not just presence in you, but when we are together, a heightened presence for all of us. It's that they drank the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so in the Lord's Supper, we eat and drink from the spiritual rock that follows us and meets us, and that rock is Christ. And there's just, there's great mystery in the interaction of presence for presence. Even in the interaction of one Christian and another, it's like the heat turns up. And, I mean, I experience, I experience this all the time with, with you guys. Uh, the heat turns up and there's more Christ to be experienced. Well, at the same time, by our faith, we have all things in Christ. And so this presence for presence is, is really just one mystical body caring, caring for, its, for itself. In you and me, in our eating, in our drinking, in our gathering together, Christ tends itself. He takes care of himself. He washes himself. He bandages himself. So, verse 27. <clears throat> Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy man's self, then, and then so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so we may not be condemned along with the world." <laughs> Well, that escalated quickly, am I right? <laughs> so, like, here we were having this fun esoteric talk on presence for presence, and now we run into some of the hardest and heaviest verses in the entire Bible. Uh, so let's take this slow. Uh, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. First, let's look at the original circumstances Paul was rebuking. 
the Corinthian church was using the Lord's Supper to exclude one another, to divide one another, and to ignore one another. And this is really bad. Um, but what I will say is, like, if you read this verse and you start freaking out about your own sins, I, I do think it's fair to say you can calm down. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Um, but there is some truth to our fear, though. Like, again, this, this is totally foreign to the evangelical imagination. But for most of church history, the Lord's Supper was central to the discipline in the church and of the church. It was commonplace that if someone was caught in great sin, it was asked for them to abstain from the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that connects the presence in me to the presence in you by the presence of Christ— and so if there's hate in you, or there's pride in you, or and as you gather around the table with this hate and this pride, I think it's fair to say that you're playing with fire. Guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, meaning guilty concerning each other, meaning our sin towards each other adds rottenness to the meal. So verse 28 says, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And this recalls the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you are offering, uh, it's in chapter 5, so if you are offering a gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So at verse, at verse 29 in, in 1 Corinthians, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Again, quite foreign to our evangelical ears. <laughs> but I can say for myself... How you engage with the Lord's Supper, more often than not, will be a marker to your soul, an indication of your health and unhealth. How you sit in the Lord's Supper will say more about you than perhaps anything else in your life, which I, I totally understand why that would be a hard sell to many of you that grew up in faith communities that did not practice it regularly. But if going back to the ancient forms, really all the sacraments and all the spiritual disciplines were built up to the Lord's Supper. It was and is the pinnacle of spiritual formation in a faith community. So examine yourselves. We see in the verse a direct connection to confession and then to the Lord's Supper. And what I say to that is, yes, confess your sins. Um, but with some direction to that, I say confess your sins with compassion on yourselves. If, if you want to grow in the usefulness of the Lord's Supper in your spiritual walk, start with small acts of confession, like, like calling your mom today and saying sorry, uh, or calling a friend and saying sorry. Or start examining yourself with the help of others, like going to therapy or meeting with a pastor. Self-examination is scary. 
and it is prone to shame, so don't do it alone. And yes, we did just read, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if, you, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. <laughs> so is it healing? Is it sanctification? Is it discipline? Or is it judgment? I have spent a lot of time in my life trying to understand and feel my way into what is this Christian experience being described here. And I totally struggle with the way God uses words in this case. He seems quite loose with definitions at times. Um, But as I have observed and thought through my own experience of Christ, I would say that, yeah, healing, sanctification, discipline, judgment— can sometimes just feel just like the other, which can lead to like a geez, like what the heck? Uh, So is it healing? Is it sanctification? Is it discipline? Or is it judgment? And to that I say, to that I say, Take Christ. Take Christ however he comes to you. However he comes to you. Don't be afraid that he can discipline you. Just want him. Desire him. Desire him more than... Desire him more than you fear the consequences for your actions. Fear God more than you fear your sin. In rebuke, he is your savior. In gentleness, he is your savior. In life, he is your savior. In death, he is your savior. So how should I interact with the Lord's Supper? Come hungry. Come needy. Come looking to be exposed. The Lord's Supper is for the lazy Christian. The level engagement is both intense, but also it's so simple in its approach. So just come as you are. And the Lord's Supper is for the not good enough Christian. Just take Christ however he comes to you. Love him more than you love your sin or fear your sin. And the Lord's Supper is for the hurting Christian. I can't say how much I've loved the Lord's Supper in allowing me to hold my open wounds in front of his open wounds. And so, in all the interactions of presence for presence, our call is to keep surrendering to his spirit. And the Holy Spirit within you adores Christ. And he adores the Christ that meets us here at the table. And Christ adores the spirit that is within you. It is a love and adoration that we cannot comprehend. 
and the Lord's Supper gives us a tangible and bodily experience in, within that eternal adoration. Coming to the Lord's table places yourself in between this eternal adoration. So living in the Spirit is living on Christ. So you just feed the Spirit Christ, and the Spirit will feed you Christ. For me, the sacraments and the spiritual disciplines of the faith and life with Christ have really become the most alive and most invigorating after I became convinced of the completeness of Christ for me and God's unconditional love for me. I mean, before, before love convinces a sinner, I mean, participation just feels like almost completely powerless. It's like poking a dead animal with a stick, um, which I've done lots of times. Uh, and what God's love is asking is love asks to go to the bottom of yourself and to sit with you there. And from there, there are really only two questions for the soul. Do I believe God's love for me? And then do I love God? So, when you come to the Lord's Supper today, come with those two questions burning in your heart. Do I believe God's love for me? Do I love God? And remember, 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 A little experience of Christ is everything promised from Christ. God has given all of us different degrees of faith and different appointments for healing. And in all of this, there is this miraculous simplicity to all your interactions with Christ. He's just with you. He is with you. Do not let that simplicity get lost on you. He is with you. So in closing, um, the author and theologian N.T. Wright wrote, when, God, when Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He just gave them a meal. So <laughs> our moms are right. You are what you eat. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, send us Jesus, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Uh, meet us together. Um, meet us in our own hearts, meet us in the hearts of others, and meet us at your table, Lord Jesus. Uh, Feed our faith, Lord God. Raise us up. Heal our wounds. Thank you for all your children gathered here. In your precious name, amen.